The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. As always, so glad to have you. Today we have a guest that is really, really cutting edge. I mean, everybody's talking about climate change. And today we have Dr. Melanie Leonard. She's the author of a book called Life in the Hot House, How a Living Planet Survives Climate Change. And she's going to give us a very unique and very scientific but user-friendly point of view on what we're seeing in terms of climate change, how to explain that, and what we can do to actually support the Earth's movement in this time of climate change. Now, Melanie is uh, an award-winning journalist. She's a climate researcher and has been for many years. She's going to be explaining to us a little bit about her background, and then we're going to dive right into the 21st century challenges that we face in terms of climate change and get her point of view as a, as a researcher and as a, as a climatologist who can help us understand what we're seeing in the world around us. Melanie, I'm so glad that you could join us for Go Green Radio today. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm really happy to be here, Jill. Thank you for your interest. Well, you bet. And I, I loved your book. Uh, I read it cover to cover, Ooh. and I, I think it's really something that is digestible and user-friendly and yet gives us such a great scientific basis for what we're seeing. Now, um, before we dive into your book, Life in the Hot House, I'd like for you to set the stage for our listeners. Your book is the culmination of years and years of research, and you have really a wide breadth of research locations that you've been in. If you would, give our listeners an understanding of what you've experienced, and studied in order to come to the conclusions and recommendations you have in your new book. Okay, I'd love to. Um, well, I think a good place to start is in Puerto Rico when I first went to work on my master's degree. I had been a journalist at that point, went to go back and study the sciences, forestry actually, um, and um, was well, I, when I arrived on the island about a week later, here came Hurricane Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I was, wow. Uh, yeah, that was quite an experience and very devastating. I mean, it looked apocalyptic after the storm. And yet in the four months that I was there where I was working on a forestry internship, I, could, I saw the trees come back to life. They went from being completely leafless to, you know, leafing out, which I guess, you know, a lot of people see that in the spring, but when you see it after a hurricane and in a place that doesn't usually go leafless, it seemed really amazing. And even some of the trees were re-sprouting from the trunks that had broken off. So I was just really impressed with nature's power there. And um, from there, I did some forestry research in China and ended up coming back to Puerto Rico to be, uh, do some environmental reporting again. And then on to Colorado, I came to the University of Arizona to do uh, research. And I was attracted by, here at the University of Arizona, there's a lot of people doing great work on past climate and also, you know, what the ecology was like during the past climate. So that really intrigued me and led me to do some work on 
tree rings in Colorado, and I worked actually in an experimental wheat field outside Phoenix. We were looking at how higher CO2 levels affected these plants, and uh, ended up then later working for the climate assessment for the Southwest once I finished my Ph.D., and got a chance to investigate uh, from a social research end, which is a little closer to journalism, uh, how people were dealing with some of these huge fires in the West. We had a, huge, a big fire here, half a million acres, took down a lot of trees. So, uh, and, and throughout that time, especially while I was at the climate assessment for the Southwest, I got a chance to do some writing for the general public and talk to top climatologists. So I'm not actually a climatologist myself, but I feel like I've, you know, absorbed a lot of information that I share that information through um, what other people are saying. I talk to a lot of experts for this book. Well, what's intriguing to me about this book is that though it's clear you know, that you have this depth of, of scientific knowledge, your journalistic abilities come through because it's so thoroughly readable. Life in the Hothouse is something that I really feel like anybody, regardless of where they fall in the continuum of understanding about climate change, really could pick up and glean a lot of information that, that they could digest immediately. One of the theories that you talk about in the book, I'm, I'm thinking that many of our listeners might not be familiar with it. It's called the Gaia Theory, and I think that's pretty crucial to understanding and fully appreciating your book, Life in the Hot House. Can you help us understand the Gaia Theory? I sure, I sure will try, and I appreciate your, your comments. That was what I was hoping for, so I'm glad it, it worked. <laughs> um, but the, uh, so I like to think of the, the Gaia Theory in the context of kind of a little bit more modern interpretation than the original. I'll come back to that one in a minute, um, of the, like the sweat of the earth. So where humans, we have one of our cooling, ways of cooling off is we sweat. And the reason right. that helps is the evaporation of water, having that heat, water evaporating actually takes some of the heat out of our body in the process of turning water into gas but mm-hmm. and flying off as evaporated water. And the earth has actually the same mechanism. Evaporating water is one of the major ways the earth keeps, cools down, and that's what kind of runs our, our circulation system of climate um, because there's a lot more heat at the tropics than there are in other places, so you've got a lot of evaporation having, happening there and then being exported into other areas. Um, and that's partly why hurricanes are around. They, they actually really help to cool off the tropics in particular ah. and can cool the areas they're traveling over, too. So, so that's the kind of physical component. And, um, I, I, and there's another element that goes back to more the original Gaia theory, as James Lovelock um, described it with Lynn Margulis, and that is involving the plants and the, the basically, you know, any microorganisms or they, they like to focus on bacteria that photosynthesizes so turns sunlight into energy and in the process takes carbon dioxide and turns it into carbohydrates so um that's you know while they focus on bacteria i just tend to go up to the level of forest because forests are actually where you know where most of this is happening and um as lynn margulis likes to, to point out it's the bacteria in the leaves but there's still you know 80% of, of this uh, biomass, the carbohydrates that are being made, uh, are happening in the forest. So, you know, the, the great thing is you can really even look at this as something that's happening now because our forest and our ocean together are taking up about half of the 
carbon dioxide that we're putting in the air by burning our coal, oil, and gas. So they're they're on the job now, and you know it's it's actually uh, a pretty amazing thing that I think we need to appreciate nature and work with it a little more. Well, and it's really it's a it's a cool concept to think about the Earth being able to regulate its own temperature much the same way other living things can do it. Um, you know, so if it gets too hot. Hurricanes, you know, are are formed to cool it off. I mean, mm-hmm. and of course, I'm oversimplifying it, but just the idea that the Earth is not like a computer or not like a, a concrete foundation, you know, where we affect everything, but that the Earth itself is a living thing, um, and all the systems, the ecosystems, work together to um, support life on the planet, yeah. and that the planet will regulate itself. Very well said, and I. I like to add to that, you know, I think Lewis Thomas had a nice analogy where he compared, compared the earth to a cell, which is nice because cells don't have brains, but they right. have membranes, and those membranes are able to filter things out. They can bring in food, they can let out waste, and so he pointed out that the earth's membrane is the atmosphere. We're filtering mm. out some of the ultraviolet rays with our ozone layer, and then we've got our greenhouse gas layer that is um, keeping in some of the heat, and that is actually, you know, doing a lot to regulate planet over, I mean, the planet over the long time frame, the temperature on the planet. Right. You know, there's so much emotion right now involved in the debates about climate change right now. I mean, there are those who urge an almost panicked approach to the data that we're seeing, and then there are those who are well, frankly, beyond nonchalant. I mean, they're advocating no response at all from human beings to the data that we're seeing on climate change. But in order to achieve the most reasonable human response to what we're seeing as the condition of our planet, where do you think we should all be on the emotional continuum so that we're solid and we're, we're ready to think this through rationally? Well, we do have problems here. And I can see, you know, panicking isn't going to help, but neither is burying your head in the sand. Um, mm-hmm. I think what we need to do is just try to have the emotional stamina to to look at the facts clearly. And I almost sense that some some of the fear or the reason people don't want to look is they don't really trust machines. You know, there's almost this, like, matrix-like fear of machines and the models that come out of them. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's partly why I just wanted to come down to what we can feel and visualize like what we see happening on the planet, um, you know, in specific climates, like the tropics versus the desert versus the cooler climates, and just look at what the Earth is doing and what it's done in past time frames, and, you know, just really be ready to explore those facts. I mean, people might not want to, to know that their bank account is shrinking either, but, you know, if, if, if your money is disappearing, you need to get in there and look at it clearly and say, oh, I'm in trouble here. What am I going to do to to make a difference? And I think we've got the same thing happening with with the planet. You know, we've it, it it would be nice if we didn't have to look at it, but I really think all of society needs to get involved and you know, everybody's everybody's view does count, but we need people to be basing their views on real information. Well, I, I think you're right, and I think that a lot of our Go Green Radio listeners, you know, they're parents who are concerned about the planet, that they're leaving their children, and there are some environmentalists and climatologists that say we've already reached beyond the tipping point of coming devastation due to climate change, and that's really left a lot of parents feeling really nervous and maybe even helpless to shape the future 
you know, that they were hoping to leave for their children. In the couple minutes that we have left before break, what could you say to those young parents or grandparents even um, who might be feeling a bit helpless in the face of all these huge challenges that their children are going to face? Yeah, I think that is a big concern, what we're leaving the next generation. But uh, in the meantime, I think one thing we can do is help them learn kind of a problem-solving mode about this to help them deal with what comes down the pipeline. And this can start when they're very young. Um, The nice thing is that many of the same things that help us stabilize greenhouse gases at the global scale also cool things off locally. So, you know, I tend to highlight forests and trees a bit. And uh, the nice thing, you know, so help planting a tree with your child can be a really nice learning experience and and help with... um, you know, a lot of factors, I mean, trees are not only taking down carbon dioxide, they're also shading the surface. And they right. tend to do the most benefit in the hottest part of the hottest season. It'll be like 30, 30 degrees Fahrenheit difference if you're talking about the, touching the surface of, say, the asphalt as opposed to the air. And they also cool the air by, like we do and like the earth does, by evaporating water. So, you know, right. that's a really nice thing. And especially if you put trees around your house where you're shading summer sun so you won't have to use as much air conditioning, you mm-hmm. know, just teaching them to, I mean, air conditioners, they, they actually produce heat. They cool your little environment and put that heat outside. So anything you can do to neutralize that heat before it gets into the wider city or, or countryside is very helpful. And mm-hmm. Even changing the light bulbs can make a difference. I mean, if you touch some of these complex fluorescent lights, they use about a quarter of the energy as your conventional light bulb, and they're actually, you can touch them without burning your finger. If, you know, That's a fact. You to, yeah. So, well, you well know. we are going to be right back, folks, with more from Dr. Leonard. We're going to be talking about life in the hot house, how a living planet survives climate change. We'll be diving in deep uh, in the coming segment on how we can understand and help to support our planet as the climate changes. So don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi, you can trust me. I'm African-American, just like you. So here's the low monthly payments and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back. What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council. 
Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I am so glad that you joined us. And I know that there are a lot of my Twitter friends, my tweets out there who are listening to Go Green Radio, and I'm so glad you are. If you guys would like to ask Dr. Melanie Leonard any questions, as we mentioned before, you can do that by calling in at 866-472-5788, or you can send me an email at gogreenradio at gmail.com, and we will get your question answered. Well, we are back with Dr. Melanie Leonard. She is the author of Life in the Hot House, How a Living Planet Survives Climate Change. It's a fascinating book, and I would urge you to get a copy of it. It's a, it's a great read because not only is she a scientist, she's an environmental journalist, and her style is so easily, you know, digestible. It's something that you can really wrap your head around. She uses a lot of uh, stories that help you visualize some very complex science that's going on with our planet right now, but it's very accessible to the general public, like me. So, Melanie, thanks so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. I'm delighted that you're here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, you talk about uh, this notion of tipping points for climate change in your book, and we've heard that before. You know, a lot of people who are engaged in the climate change discussions, debates, you know, political mayhem, whatever you want to call it, talk about this concept of tipping points. And actually, as you discuss in your book, these tipping points are not new in Earth's history, but you do mention in your book 
that it's difficult to know where they are or even know when we've reached a tipping point until after we've passed it. Help us understand that concept and how it relates to the current debate on climate change. Well, that's a great question. I mean, the thing is, climate changes can be abrupt, and that's what we've seen in the record. If um, anybody's seen an inconvenient truth or some of the the graphs that show how we go when we go from ice ages to interglacial warm periods like we've been doing for the past two million years, you can see some of those changes. I mean, all of a sudden the line just shoots up. And, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to tell with the, exactly what's happening, but we do know that, um, that greenhouse gases, I mean, there's been strong evidence showing that greenhouse gases seem to be the, the tipping point that melts the ice and raises the sea level. So it's the sun that actually starts the changes, where the sun is hitting and how long uh, northern summers are. But uh, then the greenhouse gases get involved. And that actually was involved in another, uh, well, so that's an ice age. The Earth can be stable in a a much icier condition than we are now. We're kind of in the middle ground now. We're in an interglacial warm period, not as warm as some of the past ones. We're, you know, kind of in that Goldilocks place of just right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then there's these hot houses that we've been in 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 the past. And, you know, those are also um, linked to greenhouse gases. For instance, uh, 100 million years ago during the Cretaceous, uh, volcanoes were putting out a lot of greenhouse gases and um, it really shot up temperatures and, you know, greenhouse gas levels, and no ice was left on the planet. So sea levels rose more than 150 feet in that case. Now, luckily, we're not talking about that anytime soon here, but I think, you know, just understanding that these things happen, and, and another element of that is, you know, here's what the planet can survive, but obviously those kind of changes whether a serious cooling or a serious heating, um, are really disruptive to society. Well, and I think that's where a lot of people sometimes miss the point. I think there's a lot of people who believe, and rightly so, that regardless of climate change, the Earth itself will be fine. As you mentioned in your book, the planet can stabilize in an ice state, and evidence for recurring ice ages verifies that. And then you say the planet can stabilize in a state lacking permanent ice caps. That's what has happened during earlier hothouses. So for all those who are trying to rally human beings to change their behavior based on the mantra, save the planet, it seems to me like they're kind of missing the point because the point is that climate change could have some very uncomfortable ramifications for human beings, not necessarily the Earth. So talk to us about what various human populations in different parts of the world may experience due to warmer climates. Okay, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, no one is immune to climate change. If nothing else, it can hit us in the pocketbook. But um, I actually focus on the United States in my book just because I think that a lot of us Americans aren't thinking of ourselves as the ones at risk. So maybe some of the things I'll talk about would would affect anyone, but they definitely affect us here. And, you know, I, I like to go from kind of what do we know? Well, one thing we know is that warmer air holds more moisture. So that has a few implications, and one of them is there's more moisture in the air to come down. So there's, there's overall around the globe more rainfall and more intense rainfall. It can come down in bigger pockets. And you can see that just with, you know, if you think of a summer storm compared to a winter storm. Because even, even with the snow we got this winter, it still takes about 10 or 12 inches of snow to make uh, an inch of rainfall typically. So when you're talking 
places in the tropics that get 10 or 20 inches of rain in an event, you know, it's quite impressive. So right. the other thing is with the air, warm air holding more moisture, it increases the risk of drought. So, you know, that's the other end of the extremes that is a real danger. And, you know, we've been seeing some of that even, you know, in Atlanta. And we've had a long drought here that's temporarily probably uh, relieved. But those two things, you know, kind of go together, and you can see intuitively why that works. Um, and then that just has the potential to really disrupt agriculture. I mean, we've got our agricultural systems where they are because of how the climate is there. And now mm. farmers have to kind of scramble to try to respond to what's happening. And, you know, it's hard to tell what precipitation is going to do in a specific area. So it really makes that challenging. And, you know, we can see food prices could be a problem there. Uh, another issue that's been affecting a lot of us in, in the West is uh, bigger wildfires. And there's yes. been a, some really good studies showing that warmer temperatures that cause earlier snow melts are actually linked to some of those. I mean, they're also worsened by the fact that we haven't let fires go through our forest, so there's all this fuel waiting to burn. But, you right. know, but then when the snow's gone and it dry, if it doesn't rain soon enough, you know, dry forests can torch up. So that's, right. that's another one. And then, of course, we've got the, the kind of the poster child issue of the stronger hurricanes, which um, the thing is we know that warmer sea surface temperatures fuel hurricanes. That's what revs them up. So even though there are other things that can counteract that, you know, the winds can knock them down in, in the right conditions, it, we just have to be ready for stronger hurricanes and probably right. getting a little further than they normally do because of, you know, if the seas stay warmer further north and south. And, and then we're back to the old temperature is going, you know, melts ice at different amounts in different years, but that overall leads to um, a sea level rise that we have to worry about. Um, and well, one other thing, oh, and there may be a lot of folks who are in Illinois right now who are listening. I'm from Illinois. And they're thinking, oh, Crimea River, all you people who live in, you know, coastal areas who go to the beach and surf every day, you might get affected by climate change. I don't really care. But talk to us about how middle class, middle America may actually be affected by climate change. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Illinois, and, and I'm actually from Illinois myself, from Chicago. And, um, well, there was a, the heat waves are a big one that it's going to, you know, a, mo a lot of people live in cities these days, and that is a big problem with heat waves. And, for instance, in Chicago, um, I don't know if you were in that area during the heat wave of 1995, but... Uh, no, I was in San Diego then. Ah, nice. <laughs> it was 72 and perfect. But <laughs> <laughs> but a couple of my brothers-in-laws were working there, and they both ended up getting sick during that, and, you know took a while to recover, um, and not everyone recovered. About 700 people died in that heat wave in Chicago. So mm. um, basically, there some of the projections, and we can get temperature projections a lot more uh, precise to some degree. You know, they're more predictable than precipitation. So the prediction for more intense heat waves, like longer heat waves, more severe heat waves, that's a pretty... Uh, you know, I have a lot of confidence in that one, in, unfortunately. So what they're talking about is possibly having that scale of heat wave uh, every other year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, of wow. course, that's a big corn country. So, you know, any drought there, I remember some of the droughts or even floods affecting 
the crops there. You know, that can just devastate the local economy. Right. Well, we saw that in Iowa just a couple of years back with all the flooding. I was flying over it, um, and, and I could see that, I mean, there were crops, just acres and acres and acres that were underwater, and, and farmers were devastated. So that, that's going to have an effect on just about every product that we buy. There's so yeah. much corn and wheat in all the products that we buy. That has a ripple effect you know, across every grocery store in America. And not to mention the fact, you, you also talk about this in your book, I mean, it, when there is a natural disaster like a hurricane, it's not just the people who live there who are paying the insurance and the, you know, the FEMA bill. We all share that, and we all share that in insurance premiums and what have you. So there certainly will be a cost to middle America, middle-class America, uh, to these climate change issues as well. And I know, you know, I live in California, which, you know, the Central Valley of California has been called the breadbasket of America. And when you see droughts like we've had the last three years in California, um, you know, I know that I'm not the only one paying more for produce mm-hmm. uh, at the grocery store here in California. We ship that all over the country, and and that's affecting us all. Well, we're going to be back after a quick commercial break. We're going to talk more about that urban heat island effect. So folks who are living in big cities in America, what may be happening due to climate change there and what we might be able to do about it. So don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We have Dr. Melanie Leonard here with us today. She's the author of a book that I highly, highly recommend you have on your bookshelf. It's called Life in the Hot House, How a Living Planet Survives Climate Change. And we're so glad to have her with us today. We're going to just piggyback right on to what we began to talk about in the last segment, and that's this idea of the urban heat island effect. In your book, Dr. Leonard, you made a very interesting statement that I'd like to spend some time on because I think it could really have, well, huge ramifications for public policy and urban planning. You said that concrete and pavement play a role similar to that of greenhouse gases, and this is what is called the urban heat island effect. Go into some more detail for us and help us understand the urban heat island effect. Okay. Well, that is a big one, and that's... uh you know, basically asphalt in buildings radiate heat, and tall buildings block the breezes that might cool us off. So between the, those things and, you know, related issues, uh, the cities are actually warming up a lot faster than the countryside in most places. Uh, in Phoenix, they were finding, uh, they did some major studies there, Arizona State University, and found that uh, the temperatures were rising, which was at a rate, you know, really high rates at some of these places, 20 degrees on average since the 70s. Um, But about two-thirds of that was related to the expanding population and all that pavement, the roads coming in, the sidewalk, buildings, and about a third of it was related to global warming in their study. Uh, And that has a lot of implications because, you know, of course we talked about the heat wave issue, and that's kind of obvious, but another thing is that higher temperatures actually tend to increase pollution, so you'll have higher ozone rates levels at the surface when you have higher temperatures, yeah. So that's another thing where, um, you know, just taking action to to deal with that, and, you know, I know I emphasize trees a lot, but it just turns out that they also clear the air of pollution somewhat, although they do have some trouble with ozone when there's too much, but... um, and they shade the surface and just, you know, help keep things cool. Because one of the issues, and this is another thing where people might not realize how vulnerable they are, but uh, the heat waves, you know, generate a lot of air conditioning use, and that right. is the kind of thing that can lead to a major power outage. So, you know, you could have your power going out. I was in Cleveland in um, 2003 when the whole East Coast went down. You remember that? Yes, so, I do. And it was like for a day and um, in some places. And, you know, that actually was just within the same time frame that in Europe they had heat waves that killed tens of thousands of people. So, yeah, that was awful. Yeah, so we were just so fortunate that in Cleveland and New York we actually had relatively low temperatures, 90 degrees, um, instead of the 100 degrees they were dealing with. But, you know, if that had happened during that, if the heat wave had occurred right when that power outage occurred, I mean, that would be potentially disastrous, and that's where having vegetation as opposed to, at least as a backup for air conditioning, is really important. 
Well, and I know that Mayor Daley of the city of Chicago has been instituting some initiatives to kind of mitigate that urban heat island effect. You talk about that in your book. What is he doing there? Well, he is actually pretty forward thinking on this. After that 95 heat wave, he and some of the other people there, they've been really promoting green roofs. And that's a good place for it because there's enough moisture to support it. So they've got, you know, City Hall, they've got all these, you know, beautiful plants. You can Google that and see what they've, they've got there. And, uh, you know, there a lot of different planners are starting to put that on their roof. So, you know, that just kind of really can help. And they've planted uh, a lot of trees, too. And they, they have a map that they looked at the heat, where the heat was you know, during some of these heat waves. And, you know, as you might expect, you tend to get the low-income neighborhoods to be a little more denser buildings and things usually, and they tended to be hotter. So they focused on those neighborhoods. So that's a really nice approach. Well, it is. It's very human-centric. And 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 I gotta, I've got to ask the million-dollar question mm-hmm. because I think it's kind of the elephant in the room. And we talk about urban planning and green design on this show regularly, but it seems as though a lot of environmental groups are advocating for an increase in urbanization of the human population. Even I know here in the Bay Area of California, we have urban growth boundaries and, and protection of open spaces, which on its face seems like a great idea. But, you know, with what we're talking about with this urban heat island effect, it seems like it might be better for human beings to spread out a little bit more and ruralize to some degree because the combination of the urban heat island effect, water shortages, you know, especially out here in the West, and then rolling power outages that can and do occur when air conditioners are blasting, it seems like a bad combination for human health and even resource conservation. So what do you think about this, you know, this push to urbanize that a lot of environmental groups are advocating? Well, I do think we need to step back and consider the urban planning in the context of this ongoing warming. And, um, you know, I understand where the environmentalists are coming from. They are trying to reduce some of the greenhouse gas emissions by keeping people closer together so there's less driving. It also helps create a critical mass of population so you can support mass transportation. Um, but and, and also protect some habitat, which, of course, is going to be a major issue. But, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, I think you need to bring forests to the cities and bring more habitat to the cities. I mean, look at New York with its Central Park. What a difference mm-hmm. that makes for the livability of that city. Mm-hmm. And Chicago with its green roofs, and now it's Millennial Park. But, you know, I, I just think more than ever people are going to have to start thinking of planning in terms of climate and, you know, how the wind flows. Uh, when I lived in old San Juan in Puerto Rico, I... I didn't even have air conditioning. I was living in the tropics. I didn't need air conditioning or heating. That was probably my greenhouse gas uh, when I used the least of them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there I noticed that the buildings are really, you know, they, they're varied. They're not just a bunch of blocks. They're right. up and down. They have courtyards in the middle of the buildings. There's just a lot of built-in ways to cool it. And, you know, again, coming back to the, the concrete versus the soil and the plants. I mean, there's just going to be, have to be some serious analysis of what is the ideal combination that we can support, and we should think about that. Like in my well, neighborhood. And I do think we should think about that, and I'm hoping that maybe if we all start saying it enough that it can become more than just, you know, a, a local thought here or there, a city that's doing urban planning well, and more of an institutionalized 
approach. I know I had right. some interns last summer. One was a green architecture major at Princeton, the other an urban planning major at USC, and they had never had any of their professors talk about how their two fields have got to integrate and how they've got to, to mm. talk to one another. And, um, and then bringing someone with your background to the table, I mean, it just seems like there ought to be some kind of an institutional approach to integrating the knowledge base of all these various fields into urban planning on a larger scale. I don't know if you've considered that. I'd love to be involved in something like that. I think it's a great idea, and I do find myself to be somewhat human-centric, at least in what I'm, you know, these days when I'm looking at. And, and you know, I, I feel like we also have these temperature sensors on our body. Like, we can tell when things are about right. Like, for myself, a house that um, my husband and I bought in 2004, the backyard was completely covered in concrete. And we mm-hmm. took that up, and when I go outside now, I, I like to go barefoot in my backyard. I can, you know, I can always stand comfortably on the soil. The soil never gets too hot to stand on, whereas the concrete sidewalk that we left, sometimes it's too hot. In the winter, sometimes it's too cold. You know, you're really, it, it's just, it doesn't even, even without the vegetation, just exposing the soil can, can be, be useful. And, you know, the green roofs and rainwater harvesting, we just have to build that into our cities because mm-hmm. with all the rooftops we have, we can actually have a lot more vegetation in desert cities than, uh, than you'd think because we're, you know, a lot of that is just not, not uh, filtering into the soil unless you collect it. Oh, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, what's missing is that a lot of folks see these kinds of um, initiatives like green roofs or rainwater harvesting as sort of um, sort of campy, sort of, you know, kumbaya. And, and we really need to help people understand how very vital this could be, not just to our survivability. We don't have to go, you know, to the panic mode, but to our comfort. If we want to maintain human comfort and a great standard of living for our children and grandchildren in the 21st century, these are the kind of common sense, intuitive approaches that we need to integrate into you know, social policy, public policy on a larger scale. Exactly right. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too, that this effect works, it seems to work at the neighborhood scale, which is kind of a, an emerging finding uh, where, you know, even wealthy neighborhoods that have a lot of vegetation are much cooler than, for instance, poor neighborhoods that are kind of high density and barren. But even in, in this Phoenix study, even some of the middle-class neighborhoods where they were trying to save water, because water is precious here. But, you know, we maybe need to think in terms of how much population can we support given our water shortages and given the fact that we need to include some for vegetation so we don't fry, you know. Because even well, these, that's true. Yeah, these middle class, this middle-class community was just as hot as the, uh, the lowest-income lowest community because they had uh, the zero-scaping where they had the desert plants and the gravel. You know, that's a great point. I mean, and and we've actually had guests on this show who've talked about that, talking about, you know, planting uh, things or, or not planting things in your yard that would, you know, need irrigation. Uh, it's such a delicate balance between, you know, resource conservation and livability. It really is. And yeah. I think if anybody had the silver bullet, we'd already know, but uh, these are great discussions to have. You know, you talk about 
um, trees and you talk about wetlands as the kidneys and the lungs of, of our planet, mm-hmm. um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the next segment. But give us sort of the 30-second the snapshot of how those two entities, you know, help the planet breathe. Well, um, one of the big, all trees and forests, uh, you know, are taking in carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen. Um, and wetlands have the additional function of purifying water. Uh, they're like a carbon filter, so that's an even, you know, which it becomes more essential as the temperature gets higher for probably reasons we'll need to talk about after the break. Well, that's right. And for all of you who have been wondering why the Sierra Club keeps suing over wetlands and for all the tree huggers who keep planting trees, you're going to learn why those things are so important to our planet's survivability and to the human population that wants to thrive on this planet. So don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Hi, my name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote, and then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Interstate Sportsman Talk radio show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join hosts Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad you could join us this week. We have Dr. Melanie Leonard. She is the author of a brand new book that I am a big fan of. It's called Life in the Hot House. 
how a living planet survives climate change. And if you've been listening and maybe didn't catch the whole show or you think, boy, I've got a bunch of friends or colleagues who ought to listen to this show, don't worry because you know what? It's going to air again next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Go Green Talk Network, the Green Talk Network of VoiceAmerica.com. So if you check us out at VoiceAmerica.com, go to the Green Talk Network next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon on Eastern Seaboard, and you can hear this broadcast again. Now, we gave you a little teaser before the last commercial break. We started to talk about wetlands, and we started to talk about forests, and we're going to dive right back into that because that is Dr. Leonard's specialty. You know, you've mentioned that wetlands are kind of like our planet's kidneys. They purify and uh, and help make our water drinkable and livable. Talk to our Go Green Radio listeners about the function of wetlands in a little bit more detail, if you would. I'd be happy to. Um, I had a chance to see a, uh, wetlands in action at purifying water at Oberlin College in Ohio. Um, mm. David Orr had been uh, pushing to get this uh, living machine. So it's basically plants cleaning the water, and they're basically wetland plants. And so he showed me the tour, and it actually was a, you know, Smelled like Louisiana, just nice and lush, you know, like mm-hmm. soil, not, nothing smelly. And, you know, what he gets out of there, he says, is um, water that's actually cleaner than the water in the drinking fountain, but because of protocol, they have to give it to the, put it in the pond. Just, you know, people aren't used to that yet. So they are definitely, you know, you can, you can see them in action in an experiment like that. And on the... Uh, on the landscape, they, they're just great. They absorb storm water, too, so they're really good at moderating floods. And, of course, they're also um, absorbing a lot of carbon. Um, to, that's partly why they're a carbon filter, and, you know, they just can trap all these other toxins, too. So if, if we had uh, another person in Ohio, has, Ohio's lost about 90% of its wetlands, and, that, and that's kind of a lot of the country as a whole, we just don't have a lot of them left, but we can bring them back, and he's showing that. He just just adds water, and they'll, they'll come back in, in the right situation. And so Bill Mitch, he's arguing that if we could just increase our amount of wetlands by, you know, 5 or 10 million acres along the Mississippi in particular, we might be able to keep that dead zone in the ocean there, the Gulf of, uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico there, from, from coming up every summer like it does. Right, right. Well, and and worldwide, you know, wetlands provide such a such a service that uh, you know what is actually threatening the the wetlands. Why are they disappearing? Well, you know, we've been filling them in. Basically, we're developing them and, on them, and um, uh, even in some cases, planting. Well, you know, agriculture and and cities, basically. Um, so that's where they've gone to. And, you know, people, I mean, they have this image of wetlands as kind of a something you don't want around, um, like swamps. I mean, swamps are basically wooded, wooded wetlands, and that's, uh, those are the, some of the most powerful ones. And mm-hmm. they scare people a little bit for, you know, I mean, the mosquito issue, you're going to get that anywhere, and I think we're in a stage where we, we should be able to um, deal with that and, you know, it, it, you're going to have mosquitoes either way, but um, right. this way, if you can get your wetlands back, you can have um, a lot of values. And there's one other thing about wetlands um, 
that peop- that is a little bit that people are leery of, and they do some of them do release methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. Yeah, so, talk to us about methane because I know you know we've we've discussed methane a few times when we've talked with guests about solid waste management and the methane that comes off of landfills, but I suspect that a lot of Go Green Radio listeners may not understand the the correlation between methane and climate change. Could you explain that to us? Yeah, methane is the other one of the other big greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide is uh, the major one. It accounts for about 60% of our warming that we're projecting and things. And methane accounts for about 20%. It's it's not nearly there's not as much of it around, but it's a very powerful gas. But mm-hmm. we cannot blame wetlands for our methane problem. What we can't blame wetlands for our methane problem. Sorry. Because as you hear, we've been decimating our wetlands, and yet actually methane levels have been going up globally for many years. So it, it's an issue. Now, coastal wetlands actually don't, the, the, they produce almost no methane. So they're a safe bet, and they're actually really useful for storm surge and blocking hurricane winds, things like that. So mm-hmm. coastal wetlands are safe. And Bill Nitsch, um over in, the, um, in Ohio that I was talking about, he has actually found that the amount of carbon dioxide that wetlands take up is pretty much balancing off the amount of methane they're releasing and sometimes even being, you know, more of a, they're taking up more greenhouse gases than they're releasing in some of his studies. Other people have found that certainly over the longer term, their um, wetlands are, are storing a lot of our carbon for the long term. Well, and speaking of storing carbon, isn't that kind of the function of forests? I mean, um, they sequester carbon. Um, talk to us about the function of, of trees and why we need more. Yeah, you're right. Forests are basically, you know, car- they're half carbon, and their soils have even more carbon than the trees themselves. They pull it down into the soil, and that's basically what wetlands are doing, too. So you can see that at the global scale. It's kind of interesting. You can see that carbon dioxide levels will drop during the spring greenup of the northern hemisphere, which has a lot of land and so a lot of forest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's kind of it, it's interesting. It looks like the breathing of the planet, but, you know, just on an, it takes a breath in during uh, spring and then lets it out when things start decaying, but keeps some of it, keeps some of that right. carbon in, and that's why we end up, they end up taking up uh, more material. So, yeah, and when we talk about forests, I mean, you mentioned wildfires earlier. All that carbon in the trees mm-hmm. um, that's been sequestered goes up in smoke. So, how how do we balance the need to reforest with the reality that forest fires will inevitably occur? Well, it's a good question, but let's keep in mind that not all of the carbon will go up in smoke. In fact, after that big half million acre fire here in um, in Arizona, I went up to visit one of the sites that had been devastated basically killed all the trees in that area. And yet, the trees, you you know, they were still on the landscape. They were just charcoal at this point. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe they'll burn in future fires, but they're not goners yet. And charcoal is actually, you know, that can last on the landscape a long time, and it it improves the soil. So depending on how that comes down, chances are some of that carbon that was in the tree is going to stay in that charcoal. Um, And we do. We have to account for fires. And, you know, some of the... uh, the current approach to uh, selling carbon credits and things don't always account for that. And, you know, we, we need to be reality-based. Let's, let's face it, there will be fires. But right. at the same time, even in some of those years, uh, there were some researchers uh, 
Kristen Wendemeyer was the lead author. They were looking at how much the forest emitted carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases compared to how much they were taking up in this time frame that included these big fires. It was like 2002 mm-hmm. to 2006. And the plants, I mean, the fires were, were negligible the, compared to the amount of right. carbon that the plants were taking up as a whole. So, you know, we just can't throw out this concept just because there are fires. But, you know, let's definitely account for them. Right, and I think that there, there's so much more in your book that I'm hoping everybody out there will get a copy of Life in the Hot House by Dr. Melanie Leonard. There's just some really great common-sense recommendations based on solid science. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with more Go Green Radio, so have a great week and go green. Thank you, Jill. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.